Hi, my name is Wendy Weber. And my name is Sydney Bowie. Welcome to Nobody Chooses Homelessness. A podcast dedicated to changing the cultural narratives about homelessness and shedding light on how we can mobilize to be part of the solution. In this podcast, we'll talk to everyday people, experts, entrepreneurs, and activists who are helping their unhoused neighbors find their way home again. We work for City Relief, a nonprofit organization dedicated to serving people facing extreme poverty and homelessness. City Relief shows up weekly as a mobile outreach offering people free meals, supplies, and connection to resources for housing, employment, and health care. More importantly, we offer people friendship, community, and belonging. We both have years of experience working systemically and on the ground to end homelessness. We believe that in order to end homelessness, it's going to take a holistic approach with people from all walks of life helping their neighbors in need. Today we are sitting down with Deetra Thomas, a woman who went from a pastor's wife in Arkansas to a barista experiencing homelessness in New York City. Her inspiring story was even featured on Humans of New York in 2022. And today she's here to share it with us. Deetra's journey was not an easy one, and it included escaping from an abusive marriage and experiencing homelessness for the first time. But through hard work and determination, she was able to rebuild her life in a new city and find joy in the process. What's truly remarkable about Deetra is her ability to turn hardship into positive growth. She's now using her experiences to teach others how to overcome adversity and succeed in life. Join us as we talk to Deetra about her incredible journey and the lessons she's learned along the way. Well, hello, Deetra. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me, Wendy. It's an honor. Wonderful. Well, I would love to know, uh, just to start, where where did you grow up? And um, what are some of the cultural experiences that shaped who you are today? I grew up in Arkansas. So I was a pastor's daughter and a pastor's wife for 54 years. So it was a very conservative Baptist branch. So it was those cultural things are very close circuit, ultra conservative. Uh, I never felt like, you know, I was really deprived of things. It's just the way it was. But that was my culture, you know, in the church all the time. Um, I loved being a pastor's daughter, pastor's wife, loving on people. I loved what I got to do, but it was a very... um Tightly controlled situation, particularly being a woman. So coming from Arkansas, tell us, how did you come to experience uh, homelessness in, in New York City? What was that? What was your story there? Well, um, my oldest son uh, lived in New York. And after 34 years of marriage and finally getting some counseling after 32 years, I realized that my Difficulty in being married was not just my lack of being submissive or loving. It was actually um, very psychologically and emotionally abusive. So I got out in a very dramatic way. My oldest son brought me to New York. So him and his wife lived. And so I was with them for a year in Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn. And I was trying to just figure out basically if I wanted to live. Uh, and then, you know, got a little bitty job. But after a year, they transferred with a job. And I took that as a signal that it was time to stand on my own two feet. Now, I had a better job at Starbucks at this time, but it's still part time. And I started trying to research. You know, I looked for rooms. I couldn't afford anything. And I made it a couple of months after they left with the help of a friend. And finally, I realized it wasn't going to work out. And so 
I uh, had been introduced to Josiah. I had researched the city shelters. I had talked to like three private shelters. They told me because I had to be at work at 5 a.m., they wouldn't take me. I had to give up my job. And so I was able to get into a private shelter. And anyway, Josiah helped me navigate that. So it was basically, I couldn't afford a room in New York. And even though I was working two jobs when I was in the shelter, I still couldn't afford a room. Yeah, so I'm, I'm thinking about your experience with abuse in your marriage mm-hmm. and then coming to the city and trying to navigate learning about the shelter system and all of that. Um, do you think your experience with, the tr- with trauma and abuse affected your encounter with homelessness and homeless services? That's an interesting question. I would tell you I had a lot of childhood trauma as well as the marriage But I also ran um, a ministry for homeless, a homeless shelter in Fort Smith, Arkansas for four years. So I was not worried about um, interacting with people who were homeless, if that's what you're asking. I was just scared of what was going to happen to me by going to live in a homeless shelter. Was this the end of the road for me? Would I get out of this? Those were my questions and my, if you will, extreme fears. And it was an extreme fear. It really was the dot I went into the shelter. Wow. So with all of what you're talking about, your childhood um, experience and, and, and trauma there, and then what you were dealing with in your marriage, um, and then you come in and you're into the city. And it's amazing that you had this already experience working with people who were going through, you know, homelessness and struggling with homelessness so that um, it wasn't something foreign, having those kind of connections and, and having those conversations with people wasn't foreign to you while you were kind of going through it, what do you feel like was one of the, you know, again, the, the, the counter to the abuse, what was one of the kindest things that someone did uh, for you while you were while you're going through your experience? The kindest thing was one day I was uh, cleaning off the tables at Starbucks and one of my customers asked me where I lived. And I, well, actually they said, do you live in the area? And I said, well, I, I lived in Carroll Gardens for a year with my son and his wife. And she said, where do you live now? And I'm, I'm very concrete and I didn't have an answer ready, you know, and I said, well, I, I live in a homeless shelter. And she's like, no, you don't. And I said, well, I do. And she said, can I ask questions? And I said, sure, you can. And she brought her husband the next day when I got off work and he was like, teacher, can we ask questions? I said, look, I don't go around telling everybody I live in a homeless shelter. But, you know, ask what you want. So they ask personal questions and they ask financial questions. And when the conversation was over, he was like, Dietrich, we just know you as our barista, but we love you. We cannot imagine what you're going through. So we'd like to give you this many hundreds of dollars every month for six months. And we want to invest in you. And that's how I got out. So that's the nicest thing anybody did for me. And, and that's been February 24th will be six years that I got out. And they told me just a few months ago, you're still the best investment we've ever made. So that changed my life, as you can imagine. So helping you physically get out and giving you um, this cash, amazing, life-changing. But what else was it about that in terms of an experience with strangers or people you did not know well? How did that affect you emotionally, psychologically, and the way they interacted with you and what they ended up doing? You know, no one, a stranger, really knew that I was homeless. Now, my interactions with some people in the homeless shelter, like the first two weeks I was there, every evening I walked in, somebody would come over and go, oh, you're a new volunteer. We're so glad to see you. And there was that moment of, 
I live here and watching, <laughs> you know, watching their reaction. And the first few days, I'm, you know, I'm someone who has spent my life putting people at ease. And I would go, you know, oh, don't worry about it. It's okay. They would apologize. And after a few days, I'm like, you know what? You should learn to watch what you say. I was, I, I was kind of like, you know, if you don't know how to watch what you say and just assume that you know what's going on when someone walks in the door, that's on you. You know, so my interaction, like sometimes we had a woman come in for the night and she just turned around to me and she said, I don't know what you're doing here, but you're too beautiful. You don't need to be here in this homeless shelter. And one night, one of the men started screaming and telling everybody that I was an undercover cop and that I was playing everybody there, you know, and I ended up uh, a basket case. I'd had a rough day already. And, uh, you know, he said, you're lying. You're playing everybody here. Look at the way you're dressed. You're not homeless. And he was screaming where security had come get me, had to take care of him. And I remember security telling him, don't judge her by the way she looks. And I remember thinking, odd, normally they would be telling me, don't judge him by the way he looks. And that was uh, a really hard night. Uh, I mean, he was screaming. You know, everybody was turning around and looking and me saying, I'm not an undercover cop, you know. Um, so being judged by how I dressed, you know, uh, on certain circumstances like that was difficult, but also realizing it could have easily been me. And they later came to me and said, we're sorry. You know, he just got out of prison. He's high. He's high. And, uh, you know, that's what was going on. But um, learning that you can't always look at anybody and know their story. You can't know what's going on in somebody's life just by looking at them, whether you may think they are homeless by the way they look. And I remember one of the ladies in the shelter telling me one evening that it really hurt her feelings. She hung out in the park sometimes during the day and families would just bring her their leftover food and say, here, we want to give this to you, just assuming that she wanted it. And it really hurt her feelings that they would judge her and do that. Um, and so it was for me learning you can't look at somebody and know the story or even begin writing the story. You know, you need to get to know their name and get to learn a little bit about them. And maybe that you'll be honored enough they'll share their story with you. And I would imagine even the question, may I ask a question, is probably a good place to start. Sure. Has that coupled with you? I think so. Like, uh, you know, like customers saying, hey, Dietra, do you live in the area? No, I did. You know, where do you live now? That was a question. And, you know, I could have answered it differently. I just hadn't been asked that question. It didn't cross my mind to have an answer ready. You know, something I'm really interested in hearing about um, is how do you think it was different navigating homelessness as a woman? Because many of the people that, we sh that have shared their lived experience or that I've interacted with happen to be men who are experiencing homelessness. And there's a different kind of vulnerability mm -hmm. <laughs> that women experience. <laughs> Um, so what was that like for you from that lens? One, there was a, a lot of shame at first for me. One, the fact that I had had this life, you know, and that I had to escape and I didn't have anything and, and I wasn't going to go back, you know. And one of my sons wanted me to come live with him, and but he lived in the town where I was born and went to college and got married and both his dad and granddads had all pastored there. I, it would have been emotional suicide. And I decided that I would do the homeless shelter instead. Um, being a woman in the shelter, like there were 200 and something men, there were 30 women. I mean, I would get asked certain things occasionally or, 
request made. And we had good security there. And I was just able to say no and move on or tell a guard, you know, about this. At City Relief, we aren't the only ones in the business of helping people. This podcast is brought to you by our longtime supporters and friends at Buttafuoco and Associates. They are dedicated to helping people rebuild their lives after a serious injury. They are a national injury law firm that has won over 500 million in verdicts and settlements for people struggling to overcome medical malpractice, construction accidents, auto accidents, injuries, wrongful death, and workers' compensation. Their team of personal injury attorneys has a genuine passion for seeking justice, and they understand the hardships that come with debilitating injuries that change the course of someone's life. If you or a loved one has experienced a serious injury, our friends at Buttafuoco and Associates will take care of you. Contact them at 1-800-NOWHURT.COM or 1-800-669-4878. I think... Not having, not, not having skills. Not, I didn't have computer skills. That was one of the things that was keeping me from getting a full-time job. So it was knowing that I had given, you know, 34 years to somebody as the housewife, the pastor's wife, the mom, and had invested in that and didn't invest in my own ability to do things. So that was part of it for me as um, a woman. But I don't know that otherwise being a woman affected me that much, being homeless. So your story has uh, reached so many people, obviously through um, through Humans of New York, um, and now you have this your your one woman show. Um, having all of your experiences and what you've gone through, all these different things, and being able to share that with people and people being aware of not just your story, but the the details of what it's like to uh, experience homelessness, um, and be able to see not just again not just your story, but some of your perspectives on what you've been able to learn and see. How does it make you feel to know that you've kind of been this 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 person who's able to share so much with so many people? Uh, my oldest son and I were talking about this yesterday. I said, I still do not know how to process all that has happened. And the story came out in June the 9th, so about seven months ago, and my life is literally, it's completely different. I signed papers on my own house, um, you know, two days ago. And so I am now a homeowner. <laughs> Congratulations. I'm That's sorry. Amazing. It was such a huge deal because six years ago I was in the homeless shelter, you know. And so to close and sign papers for my own house and to pay cash, I paid cash for the house. is huge. And so I did a little video and put it on Facebook and Instagram because, because the story people all over the world gave $5, $10, $25, you know, to help me. I wanted them to know that I was grateful. I have gotten hundreds of messages in the past two days since I did that from all over the world. world, And people saying, you know, on my really bad days when I can't get out of bed, I read the story. Thank you for doing that. Um, recently, I had a gentleman write and he said, uh, read your story, listen to a podcast. I shared a little bit of his. And normally I just do a red heart to let them know I read. I can't answer, you know, thousands of messages. And I decided to answer him. And I said, you're right. I know about some of this. And thank you for sharing. I said, but I want you to remember that healing comes with one new thought. You know, some people think it's a complete, it's revolutionary, like New Year's resolution. No, it's one new thought. And he answered um, very eloquently. But he said, I know you're missing several of your children, and I want you to know 
that you are mothering thousands of us who've been abandoned by our parents and the church. We can't replace them, but we appreciate you. So those messages let me know it was worth not giving up. Those messages let me know that there's people just like me looking around for that breadcrumb to nourish themselves with while they can walk two more steps and find another breadcrumb. So being that person has been interesting, but I, I will also say it's validated me in a way that has been very good for me. You know, when you live the story, you're living it. You don't have time to process and think, but tens of thousands of messages validate what I did. And I don't have any regrets. I don't have any regrets about the decisions I made. So I've had women write me. My car's packed. I'm about to back out of the driveway and I'm leaving an abusive situation. I hope one day wow. to be able to shake your hand and say, thank you for getting out of the car. And thank you for telling us that you did it. I, you know, someone said, I printed off your story. It's in the closet. I'm escaping soon. One woman, my therapist gave me your story. I'm escaping. She gave the date. Those kinds of things let me know that there's a lot of us that need a breadcrumb and are hoping. So I'm glad to be someone who gives them hope and lets them know not to give up. That's amazing. Um, and you've had such stark contrasts of phases in your life growing up and then your abusive marriage, coming to the city, experiencing homelessness, um, and then this amazing new, that you're still processing the life that you are living right now. When you think about the phase of experiencing homelessness, what do you think people most misunderstand or don't realize? And when you said to me that the gentleman said, all of those of us who feel abandoned, mm -hmm. I thought, I don't know if that's a perspective that a lot of people have, that men and women who are experiencing homelessness or have, are street homeless feel abandoned by anyone. Mm -hmm. More like, well, you abandoned society. Mm -hmm. um, so anyways, that got me thinking, what, what is your perspective on you know, things that people might misunderstand about people experiencing homelessness? I, I would say that's part of it. And, you know, while I did have a, two sons who, who would have made arrangements and one wanted me to, it just would have been emotional suicide, I still felt abandoned in a way, you know. Um, I think being feeling abandoned is part of it. You feel like you don't have options. But I think also how people do is just by looking at someone thinking you can, you have the right to judge, you know, and I know that so many times you look at people who are homeless and you think they're an addict or, you know, they've done this and, and less than 50% of the people who are homeless are addicts, you know? So there's just things that we assume. I do think, you know, sometimes you can tell a situation maybe more than you can handle and, you know, you may not want to encounter that, but just learning that they've had hard times and it might be an interesting story. It might be something that just you're literally saying, what's your name? How you doing? Uh, my name is such and such. Just that engagement gives them a deal of being seen, heard, and gives them what they need for that day. The, the beacon that you are uh, and, and are becoming, and I'm sure will continue to be uh, for 
I think so many people, but specifically as you shared, like women being able to say, you know, reading through your story, hearing your story and saying, you know what, I don't have to go through what I'm going through anymore and, and saying, thank you that this is leading me to a place where I'm going to get up and, and leave and, and really, you know, stand up for themselves um, is such a beautiful thing. Part of your story and kind of that and learning and standing up for yourself includes learning how to box. Could you, uh, could you share a little bit, a little bit about that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, in the homeless shelter one day, we were in the big room and, and Sunday football was on. And one of the counselors was like, do you like football? And I was like, I love a Hail Mary pass in the end zone, you know, to win a game. And I said, do you like football? He goes, I like boxing. And I said, you know, I want to learn to do the speed bag. You know, the little, the one, the ball, the bag that hangs on the little frame. Because I had been thinking I needed to get rid of some of this emotion I was storing inside of me, but I didn't want to go crazy. I wanted to still remain ladylike. And the speed bag, it takes romance and it takes finesse to keep that going. So you're hitting something, but you're not out of control. In fact, you have to control it very carefully. And he said, there's a boxing gym a few blocks away. I stop in there almost every day. So I went. And asked if they had a speed bag, the only thing they didn't have. But the looks I got... <laughs> from walking into this boxing gym. And so the guy gave me a little tour that said, you know, for $40, you can, you know, just take a trial class. And anyway, I decided to pay that because there were two men sparring in the ring. And just every time I would catch them peripherally, I, I could feel sobs and I would have to turn to get the sobs under control. The man with, with me was very gracious. So we got back to the desk and he said, if you don't mind my asking, why the speed bag? And I was like, well, a lot of abuse. He said, have you thought about learning to box? And I was like, do you mean as in hit somebody? He goes, no, I mean as in self-defense. And I was like, I, I hadn't thought about it. He goes, for $40, you can come take the class. And I decided to do it, even though $40 was a lot of money when you're in a shelter. But it was to go face the fears of that I wasn't allowed to defend myself. As a child, a young child, I was... Um, chained and tied up and drugged and a lot of things. And I defended myself once and got punished. So defending myself was huge. So I took this class and the owner of the gym, you know, did the class with me. And he was like, kid, what's your worst fear? I said, lifting my hand to defend myself. What do you think is going to happen? I said, I won't be in the floor crying. He said, change your clothes, kid. I'm going to say, uh, change your life. And he did. And that first time he would, uh, he said something about, you know, an abusive husband. And I was, I stopped and I go, you know, he never hit me. I don't want you to think he hit me. And he said, you think just because I can't see bruises on the outside, I don't know they're on the inside. And that got me. And I started crying and he got this white towel and he goes, you ready to cry, kid? And I was like, no. He goes, I'm going to make you cry. I said, not today. And when the lesson was over, he was like, kid, when are you coming back? And I didn't know how to tell him. I, I said, I just, I don't. Um, and he turned and yelled at the girl at the desk. He goes, put the kid's name on the paper. Give her a t-shirt. He said, you're now mine. You're behind the eight ball, kid. Here's my number. We're going to get you out of this. And so for nine months, he took me under his wing. Three of the men trained me there for free, how to defend myself, how to box. And, you know, the deal was, kid, you can't let people get stuff on you. You got to you got to say that. I was like, I, I've never said that. Yeah, you're going to today, kid. And so for 30 minutes, you know, I had to yell louder and louder. And it's, I have found when I 
feel threatened to be sucked back into that vortex of that old thinking, I can just do a boxing stance and jab the air. And, and it's like a five gallons of Gatorade being poured over me. Like you see the coach on the sidelines. And I'm like, oh, I'm not going there. It shocks me. So, you know, he changed my life. And uh, yes, I did boxing, had fun. City Relief is a nonprofit dedicated to connecting people who are experiencing homelessness and poverty to food, clothing, and vital resources they need to survive. We show up week after week on New York City and New Jersey streets, regardless of the weather, providing meals and community to those who feel forgotten. We can only do this because of the generosity of everyday people like you who want to see a world where our homeless neighbors are cared for. To find out how you can give or volunteer and make a real impact on homelessness, click the link in the description of this episode. Wow, that's amazing. Such a journey of learning to be as yourself, your own advocate, um, and breaking free from really terrible trauma yeah. um, and not feeling like you had a voice at all. Even someone walking into the shelter and saying, oh, you're you walking in and saying, oh, thanks for coming to volunteer. And you're like, well, no, and you didn't initially just make everybody feel good yeah um until you didn't and that's really amazing transformation um one thing i wanted to ask you we named this podcast nobody chooses homelessness <laughs> and we're very interested to know from our guests how does that resonate you with you how, what do you think about that i think that's a, a true statement nobody chooses to be homeless it was not a choice for me until I was faced with certain things. And then it became what I thought was the choice to lead to healing and standing on my own two feet. It wasn't anything I wanted to do, but I, I had a goal. And that seemed to be on the way to the goal. So I did it and um, learned amazing things during that time. I don't think anybody chooses it unless they are just down to desperate things, and it may be the best of a terrible situation, or just sometimes they, they just are because everything is gone. So just uh, to ask, there's a, obviously a very, very, very stark contrast between New York and Arkansas. So <laughs> just, just <laughs> a, few, a few minor differences. Um, but obviously you, you leave Arkansas, and there was already this kind of thing of like a you even in that place, like not having to put up with this and, and like deciding to, to step away from, from that abuse and then coming to New York City, right? Again, there's such a, such a difference. Do you feel like, you know, there's this phrase, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere, right? Do you feel like being in New York City has given you a little more resilience in how you, in how you deal with things and how you kind of stand up for yourself and present yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have sung, if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere in my shows. And I think it's true. And I would tell you, I would never have come to New York. Uh, I'd never been to New York before. I'm not a tourist. And plus, I was taught, you know, Broadway was a place where they, you know, do sinful things on stage, you know. So I would never come to New York. But I can say at this point in time, I think New York was the best thing that ever happened to me and for me. One, New York, I call her a female, probably because of Statue of Liberty, but you know, she's gritty. She puts you through your paces because she's had to go through her own paces and she knows who she is because of it. And I say, people come here, you know, for fame and fortune. I came here because I was going to die. You know, that's my, I, my son brought me for a new life. I came to die. But New York has shown me who I am. 
And I don't think she did it in a mean way. I think she did it because she loved me and she saw things in me that I didn't. And so she put me through my paces, you know, she put me through my steps. She's walked me miles till I thought I was going to die. You know, she makes me climb all the subway steps and take train rides where I've been threatened to the point where a man has shown me a knife in his pocket and he said, if I make one move towards you, I'll take care of them. You know, she's put me through my paces. And what I've learned is this, I'm fierce, I'm resilient, but I also love unconditionally and I want to be loved the same way. Not in a dutiful way, which was like in my old life, I was loved in a dutiful way. In New York, people just love me because I'm me. They don't feel like they have to, you know, because of religion or because of relationships. And it's been a beautiful thing to me. I love that you identify as fierce. That's a great word, <laughs> listening to your story. A great word. How can we see your show? Can you uh, tell our listeners, how can they find your show? I don't have any shows planned at the moment. Right now, I've launched my own line of cigars. Um, I did that in November, so I am in the process. I've got three stores selling them right now. Uh, and I've got someone coming from... Um, Geneva to New York to interview me for a magazine article. I've interviewed for another one. So I'm doing cigars at the moment because in my story, I was smoking a cigar. I just thought I'd give my cigar room a, a little nod, but that cigar has become the symbol around the world of hope and resilience. And so Dietra's story is launched, but my website is DietraStory.com. And so go there. There would be shows listed when they're there. I had six movie offers, which has been interesting. Uh, and I'm working on a book. And then One Woman's Journey to Love, which is all my shows, what they're called, is now a 501c3. And mm. it, it is to help women to inspire them to start their own personal journey to love. And whether they can do that with their family and friends, but just figure out what's cultural, what's tradition, what's religion, and who they really are. Or whether they need a new job or new friends, or whether they literally need to escape. One Woman's Journey to Love is for that, and we'll be developed along that as it gets started. But my website will have all of that. I just don't have a show at this moment, but I am working on original songs for another show. Yeah, you clearly uh, are really just at the start of what is going to be happening in the... Um, there's clearly going to be plenty more um, coming from you and, and, and uh, plenty more experiences that people are going to have um, hearing your story and being elevated by it and being uplifted by it and feeling like, you know, there's, there's a change they can make in their lives. Um, and you referenced a few of those, those examples before. Is there anything up until this point that really sticks out to you as like kind of one of the, the biggest things of feedback that you've gotten from someone who says, you know, I've, I've, I've read your story, heard your story, watched you. Um, and this is what, you know, that, that impact has had on me. When I did the 10 shows this summer, people came from all over. It came from New Zealand, Hawaii, all over the United States. And almost every night I would have somebody say, Dietra, I read your story. And I remember one young girl in particular. She said, I thought, if she can do that, I can do this. She said, I made a few changes because of your story. And I now have a better paying job I didn't even apply for just because I made those changes. Thank you for inspiring me to just look at myself and see, change, make changes that I knew I should do, you know. Um, so that was one of the things. And then I had um, someone write and say, Dietra, I read your story. And because of that, I'm now out of a terrible situation. And I uh, got a new job and I've moved away. So, you know, I, I honestly, um, you know, the Hollywood agent flew in. She's like, Dietra, what does it feel like to be famous? And I said, look, 
I'm not famous. I'm known. I want to be known as a human. I want to be known mm -hmm. as a woman. I want to be known as Dietra. Fame means nothing to me. I want to be known. I like being known as the woman who, um, you know how old she is and how crazy and what she did? I'm going to do this. I like that. To be a catalyst for change, for doing things you just didn't know if you could quite pull off, I'll be that any day. That I'm happy mm -hmm. for. I'm just so grateful that you have continued to be more and more elevated and a higher platform because your story has inspired so many people. So I love that more and more people are getting to hear it, especially women uh, escaping abusive situations. And um, as we're talking about homelessness on this podcast, I would love for you to um, inspire people with um, answering this question. What can everyday people, what can an everyday person do? One thing that can affect people experiencing homelessness in a positive way. I'm going to give a very small positive thing because I know sometimes people are very uncomfortable. But I would say as you pass maybe a certain area or a certain group of people, look at them, look them in the eye, just give a nod and smile, say have a good day. That may seem um, counterproductive to you that you're telling them to have a good day when in your mind they're not having a good day. You don't know. But to look them in the eye, nod your head and smile. You would be amazed at what that kind of positivity does for anybody, anybody, not just someone who's homeless. But looking somebody in the eye is showing you respect. It's acknowledging. It's letting them know they've been seen. And then, you know, I, I buy a lot of meals over here where I am. You know, I, I'll go in the bodega. I said, come here, let's buy you a meal. And there was a woman collapsed on the sidewalk. And I went and got her hot coffee and a hamburger and got her up in a chair. And, you know, um, finally had to call an ambulance for her. But uh, I, I do little things. And I just want them to know I see you. You know, I can't change their circumstances, but I can look them in the eye. I can smile. I can nod. I can have a conversation. I can buy a hamburger, you know? Yeah. Um, if I could just kind of piggyback on that, you know, there's a, there was a situation I had once when I was, this was before I was even working with city relief. And I, I met a gentleman who was panhandling and, uh, I think I had something to give him. So, so I, uh, did that and had a conversation with him, talked for a little bit, prayed with him before I left. Um, and he said, um, next time you see me, even if you don't have anything, uh, just stop and say hi. Like just stop and kind of acknowledge, right? And so yeah. I listen to your story, um, and even what you're saying at th that in there. Like I'm not, I'm not looking to be famous. Like fame doesn't mean anything. I want to be known, right? And thinking about how, just with all that you've experienced, how easily, particularly when there's these kind of structures and fundamentalist things, where it's like you become not you, like it's not, you're not looked at as an individual, but you're looked at, okay, you fit this bucket or you're supposed to be this, you play this role, you do this thing, right? Um, just yeah. even if you could expand a little more on that, on how important it is to just be known, just like as an individual, just as Dietrich, just for, for you know, anyone who's even on the street or wherever they are in their lives, like the importance of that individual being known. I go a lot of places and I, I got on a plane, hey, Dietra, I follow you on Instagram. You know, I was on vacation in Alabama. A woman came up. You're Dieter from Humans of New York. Uh, I was out at a jazz club two weeks ago. Man came up. Are you on Humans of New York? You know, can I come smoke a cigar with you? 
the fact that somebody wants, and they've come in, when, a couple came on their honeymoon recently. Can we come smoke a cigar with you? They're not smoking a cigar. They're smoking resilience. They're smoking hope. They're smoking. She didn't give up. If I go sit with her, I'm not going to give up. Here a month ago, a guy wanted me to buy him something to eat at the bodega across the street. And I don't always do it, but there was something in the tone of his voice. And I could tell he was really hungry. And I said, what's your name? I'm going to be honest. I don't remember it. I gave him, I said, I'm Dietra. I shook his hand. I said, come on, let's get a burger. We went in. I got him a burger. The next day I'm walking in and I heard someone go, hey, Dietra. And I turned around and I looked at him and he said, you bought me a burger yesterday. And honestly, I've braced myself for another request. You know, he said, you bought me a burger yesterday. And I waited for the request. It didn't come. And I said, thanks for remembering my name. Are you better today? He said, that's all I needed yesterday. Thank you, Dietra. That shook me that he remembered my name. <laughs> you know, he remembered my name and didn't have another request. It was just an acknowledgement of what it meant to him the day before to be seen. And I wished I'd remembered his name, but I didn't. For me, it's changed my life. For him, it changed him for that day. So again, I'm I'm honestly just really, really, uh, really touched by your story um, and how many people your story has touched even that i when when the gentleman said to you about you know i know you're missing your children but you're mothering so many is just that's such an amazing uh visual and such amazing thought and i think so many times we have in our lives where you know something happens things happen that obviously are what we planned don't go the way we would desire right and there's some beautiful way that it turns and, and ends up being um such a positive not just for us but for for other people if there was, again, so you have all of these people who have heard your story and, and realized, okay, there's a change I can make, right? If you were speaking to someone who has not had that kind of decision, that, that, that kind of dawning, like I don't have to, whether it's going through the abuse or going through, you know, whatever it is they're facing. Um, if you could, if you were speaking to that person, what would be the one thing you would say to them about, you know, allowing themselves to really find them, like really, I think it's even knowing themselves, right? That idea about being known. And so often we don't even know ourselves. So knowing your own worth and knowing your own value. But what would you say to that person? What I would say is, you know, evaluate what percentage of things that you think and do you do to please others. What percentage of that are you doing to please family, religion, your culture, your neighbors, and how much do you feel like just as an authentic you? And I'm not saying just bust through everything and do whatever comes into wild brain. I'm talking about basic. What is it that you want to think and do and how much you're pleasing others? When you're in, all your energy is going to keep people happy, that is siphoning the life out of you. It siphons the life out of you. And there were some things that just because someone demands it doesn't mean you have to do it. And Particularly if you're raised in the South and you're a woman, you know, that's just what you're taught. Uh, that's been very, it's been one of the hardest things for me. And I still, I think it'll be a journey for me, you know, until I die. He's learning. I'm not even, I'm not a pastor's wife anymore. I'm not a, I don't have to please everybody or make sure everybody's okay. You know, it's okay for just to take care of me and be quiet. And there's lots of times I'll see situations. I don't offer to help. It's not my place to do it. But, you know, the old me would have got, what can I do to help? You know, how can we make this better? I'm like, no. 
They can figure that out themselves and they need to figure it out themselves. But I think what percentage of your life is spent pleasing others? It's a good, good place to start. And um, what percentage of the time are you sad? Even in the middle of hard circumstances, you can be happy. And I learned that in the shelter. Uh, one of the counselors after a couple of months, he goes, Dietra, this isn't getting to you. I said, no. He said, in fact, you're thriving. I said, yep. I've learned that address doesn't define who I am. And that was an important thing for me because I was letting what the men from my childhood, my parents, the man I'm married to, and some children define who I was. And if I didn't let an address define me, why should I let them define me? So that was very important for me to learn. And while I thought the homeless shelter was there to humiliate me, I learned it was there to educate me as to who I really was. And I don't know if I would have learned it if I hadn't been living the reality of that. That's amazing. I love the kind of the, the coming together of the idea of seeing someone, treating a person. Maybe they're sitting on the ground and you're walking by them, looking them in yeah. the eye, you're treating that person with dignity. And you're also, when you're asking yourself, what am I doing to please others? You're treating yourself yeah. with dignity. And that can be a, an equal challenge, both of those things, living into mm -hmm. both of those things of treating others and treating yourself with dignity. Um, I've is. just been so inspired to listen to you today, Dieter. I want to add one thing. Yes, The please. man, Brandon Stanton, who writes Humans of New York, heard about me because of a volunteer in the homeless shelter. She wrote him five years after I had been out and said, I volunteered at a homeless shelter. There's a woman who was here. I think you need to go check her out. So I'm very grateful for even that. I, five years after I was out, she remembered and thought about me and told him. Um, so even if I hadn't have been in the homeless shelter, I, I wouldn't be where I am today because he came, heard the story and said, oh my, I'm going to do 15 chapters on this one. And wow. it went all over the world. And you wouldn't have met Josiah Haken, CEO of City Relief, who is a very <laughs> dear friend of yours now. Josiah is one of the most incredible humans I know. And, mm -hmm. you know, when I was introduced to him and met him, I was sobbing basket case. And, mm -hmm. you know, he never looked at me with any judgment. He never rolled his eyes at me. He, ne he was just like, he, he said, tell me your story. He leaned in. He listened. He got emotional with me and uh, gave me a value. And so Josiah is just, I'm not going to call him an angel. I don't want him to get big headed, but you know, he's, he's pretty up there. He's pretty up there. Well, thank you again so much. Really, it was just wonderful to talk to you, Dietra. Thank you both. Thank you for having me. Nice to meet you, Sydney and Wendy. Hey, you. Yes, you, listener. Have you ever been walking down the street and someone who appeared unhoused approached you and asked for money? Do you ever walk to the train in the morning and see someone holding a sign asking for help? What do you do? Well, don't worry, we are here to help. Click the link in the description of this episode for a quick, easy to use guide packed with helpful tips for how to engage with your neighbors experiencing homelessness.